Today's sermon text is Nehemiah 13, verses 30 and 31. Nehemiah 13, verses 30 and 31. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Tristan. And um, you should thank me for giving you the shortest sermon text to read in our entire Ezra and Nehemiah series. Happy to do that. No hard words, no hard names, no hard places. And uh, for many of us, maybe you're happy that our trudge through Ezra and Nehemiah is about to be over. Those hard Old Testament books that are a bunch of hard names, a bunch of hard places. And so we will end here in Ezra Nehemiah, and if we could just keep uh, the text up there on the screen, Nehemiah ends his book by saying, remember me, oh my God, for good. We don't fault Nehemiah for saying that. He knew what he knew. He had limited knowledge of what was coming, but uh, it's not that that was necessarily bad. Throughout the book of Ezra Nehemiah, he has asked God to remember him for the good he's done for the faithfulness he has shown to the covenant, to fulfilling God's mission in rebuilding the wall, the temple, repopulating the city. And he also kind of utters these arrow prayers, as commentators call them, when he says, remember those who have opposed me. Remember my enemies. Remember all these things. God, I'm not going to seek revenge or retaliation. And yet, we know a lot more than Nehemiah did. And we never and our lasting words or our breath of a book that we would write or of a life that we would live would say, remember me. We get to say, oh God, remember Jesus in place of me. That's how we read Nehemiah. That's how it's Christianized. That's how we follow the story and understand it in light of its New Testament fulfillment. And if God remembers Christ, in your place, that'll be for your good. It'll go really, really good for you. And that's why we sing that song, All Sufficient Merit, that's not our own. And Nehemiah reminds us it's not our own. It's Jesus's. Because that's what we're going to do. And so let me say a couple things as we begin so you don't get lost this morning and what we're going to be doing. I'm hoping to do three things. We'll throw those up on the screen. I don't have the clicker. Number one is uh, I want to explain these two little verses here at the end. Hope to give you an explanation of that. That'll be short and quick. It's about three quarters of a page on my notes. Won't last too long. Number two, the second thing is I want to give a recap of Ezra and Nehemiah. Want to tell us what they knew, what they did, and what they couldn't do, what they were operating off of. And there are certain things that, that Ezra and Nehemiah knew and certain things they could do, but there are certain things that should be very, very clear to you as you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, what they couldn't do for you, and it sets you up for Advent. And um, as, as, as a way to, to qualify this morning, I think Ezra and Nehemiah rightly offend us. I don't want to primarily be offensive this morning to anybody, especially on Thanksgiving weekend. 
But if you do get offended or your feathers get ruffled, I think that's a good thing. I think it rightly offends us in this section. Um, but also I hope it gives you glimpses. This recap gives you glimpses of Advent and prepares you for our next series that's starting next week. And then finally, thirdly, I want to exhort you to a Nehemiah-like life. I think there are ways that Nehemiah foreshadows the Jesus life. And that's what we ought to demonstrate. It's how we ought to live. It's appropriate for us to live that way. And so uh, let's, let's deal with verses 30 and 31. Can we throw those back on the screen? The context is this, is where we are ending the book of Nehemiah is Jerusalem has a temple again. It's got residents, it's got city walls, it's had a refresher on what God's word says, how they're to live, the holidays they're supposed to celebrate, the way they're supposed to worship, that they're supposed to be a pure and holy set apart nation. And the new covenant community makes this great corporate vow. We affirm what God is and all that he's done and how we're going to live. And we have our right worship in the right place. We've been instructed in how to live right here in Jerusalem. And everything is A-OK. And then Nehemiah leaves on a business trip. And he goes and has a meeting with King Artaxerxes because he's got to give him an update. King Artaxerxes has given him permission to go back and build the wall. And so he has to give a report on King on, on the building project. And while Nehemiah leaves, the, the, basically all that Nehemiah had done, all that Ezra and Zerubbabel had done, it's all for naught. And it's sad, one of Nehemiah's Jewish priests, Eliashib, basically betrays Nehemiah and allows one of Nehemiah's enemies, a, a Gentile enemy, to have a living chamber in the temple in the room where the tithes and the offerings are. He sets up shop and begins to live there. And uh, tithes and offerings stop at this time. The priesthood is dismantled. People start trading and working on the Sabbath. There's no more rest. And lo and behold, all the believers marry unbelievers and they raise unbelieving children and everyone begins to worship idols. All hell breaks loose, basically. It's like as though Ezra and Nehemiah and all the work had been done gets erased. And so Nehemiah arrives back on the scene. He goes, I can't believe this. He actually chases Tobiah out of the temple. He throws all of his stuff out. He replaces all of the incense and the offering, and he reinstills religious holidays, the priesthood, um, all the religious traditions and the right systems and structures and temples and teaching. They've got the wall together, and he sets it up all neat and tidy. But there's one thing that the new temple, the new teaching, and the new walls couldn't give the nation of Israel. Even though they had the right systems and structures, Nehemiah couldn't give them the one thing that they really needed, and that was a new heart. And that's why Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately fail and will be a failure as they are unable to give God's people a new heart. And unless someone can give God's people a new heart, no amount of good teaching or temple building or wall construction or anything else will be able to bring God's people back from their slavery of sin. And this is why Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah all fall short in God's great plan to restore his people spiritually. They restore them physically in right worship with the temple, in the right place back in Jerusalem with the right teaching with the Torah, 
all those come back in, but they couldn't restore them back spiritually. That what God was doing is restoring his people back to the city of God with the new heavens and the new earth. And that's where Ezra and Nehemiah fall short. And so what have Ezra and Nehemiah given us? They've given us helpful structures and helpful and useful systems, but only Jesus can give us the necessary spirit. And that's the big gaping hole in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's it. That's the hole that should be evident for all to see. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that we would see that gaping hole within us and oh, how we need your son. God, we rightly need Ezra's and Nehemiah's and Zerubbabel's, but oh God, how we ultimately need your son this morning. God, might we be reminded in your word, we are who you say we are. We have all that you say that we have. And God, might we do all that you commission us to do. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the explanation of verses 30 and 31. So let's go back to the recap. Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a long book. How do we summarize 23 chapters um, and, and two something that we can package and understand. And I would say this, Ezra and Nehemiah is about God moving. And he moved in the hearts of three kings, which then moved the hearts of three men, which brought about three projects. And we got a slide and we'll throw it up there. And so God used these principal causes of these kings. He used an unbelieving pagan king named Cyrus, and then Darius, and then Artaxerxes, who he used. He established his will through those that didn't worship him. His power, his sovereignty was on display, moving in the world through those that would have never been generous toward his mission in the world. And so what we had is that edict, an edict goes through Cyrus and that commissions kind of Zerubbabel who returns back from captivity and punishment back to the land and they start building a temple. The temple's delayed, but then King Darius takes over. He's a Persian king, and he reinstates the building process, and in 20 years, they've got a temple. What do they have? They have right worship again. Israel can instill Zerubbabel's right. He puts the priority on the temple. That's what we're going to do first. Then the second part of Ezra's, basically 50 or 60 years later in the traditional view of the timeline, is that Artaxerxes, which was Nehemiah's king, also Ezra's king, commissions. He actually acts like a patron. He gives him money and resources. He says, Ezra, you need to teach the people how to live right with God as their God. Why? We really don't know, except for this king probably wanted as many prayers going toward him as possible that would give him a good future as a ruler over their people. But that's what he did. God moved in his heart Ezra was actually never able to get to teaching the Torah because when he got to the covenant community, it was just filled completely with idolatry and it led to weeping and a corporate confession. But that's Ezra. 12 or 13 years later, we get the book of Nehemiah. We got that same king, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is a cupbearer, basically testing for poison. Every time the king is about to take a drip, risk his life, puts it on the line. 
And Nehemiah asked permission. He says, my father's grave lies in ruins. Please send me back. Artaxerxes sends him back and he builds a wall to repopulate a city. Ezra and Nehemiah. It's not mainly about Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. It is about God moving through a principal cause, a king, which brings about a key player to bring about a key project, all with the goal of restoring God's covenant community. God is bringing back his people from exile, bringing them back to their purity, back to his presence, and it's all going to happen through the person of his son, ultimately. That's the covenant. That's the covenant that we've been reading about from the book of Genesis. God is bringing back his people from exile, from slavery, back to their purity, back in his presence. All in fulfillment of his promise that will ultimately come through his son. Now, what could Ezra and Nehemiah not do? We think about what, we go back to verses 30 and 31, and we think about that Ezra's like, all right, I made everything clean and nice and tidy again. I got us all back. We got away from idolatry. I got the temple and the priesthood working again. I got people to stop working on the Sabbath, so I've got us all good. I've reset everything back to the way that it should be, and that's how the book of Nehemiah ends, and this would be the world that Jesus would enter 400 years later, and that's exactly what Jesus had. It had all the right structures for worship. They had a temple. It was a magnificent temple. It was a beautiful temple during Jesus' day. They had all the Zerubbabels, but they didn't have soft hearts. They had all the right teaching, what Ezra brought, didn't they, in Jesus' time. They had all the Levites and the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but the people's heart was not right with God. They had the right place. Jerusalem was restored. It had three walls around it by this time. Pliny the Elder, the Roman historian, said it was the most famous city in all of the East. It was secure. It was governed. It had a wall. They had all the Nehemiahs they could ever hope for, yet the people's heart was far from God. And what do we learn? You can have all the churches and all the best teachers and all the best leaders and worship bands. And if you don't get Jesus right and lots of him, and you get a religion full of systems and full of structures, but it's got no soul. It's got no soul. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah can't give us. They can't give us our soul back. And even though they had Zerubbabel's temple construction and Ezra's gifted knowledge and teaching, ability and Nehemiah's visionary leadership that people needed Jesus. They needed someone who could keep them from sin. Jesus came to save their soul from sin and establish a city for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah could never give. Leaves us longing for Advent. If we go to Nehemiah 9, I think the verse is on the slide. The, the people in, in Nehemiah 9 are recounting their sinful past. And this is what they say in verse 27. It says, we're still here in the recap, so just hang in with me. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies. They're talking about themselves, their ancestors, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. 
and according to your great mercies, that shows up so often in 8, 9, and 10. That phrase is so crucial to your history with God. Whether it's been eight days, eight years, 18, or 58, God has dealt with you with incredible mercy. You gave them, and guess the word they use, the Hebrew word, saviors, who saved them from the hands of their enemies. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they were saviors, just like saviors that God had sent before to save his people from Egyptian slavery, from the Canaanites, from the Ammonites, and all of these current saviors of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, God would use to rescue his people from Babylonian and Persian captivity. And God would use them to rebuild a city and a nation and a covenant community. Why? So that in 400 years, it could give birth to something. It could give birth to the Savior. They were all a means, and it would be this Savior that would finally reconstitute a holy nation back in God's presence with a pure life in fulfillment of his promise that he gave long before ages passed. You see, for Christians, Ezra and Nehemiah are a means to a heavenly city. They are means to a spirit temple and they are means to the word made. That's how we read Ezra and Nehemiah now on this end of history. An eternal heavenly city, a spirit temple, and the word made flesh. And that's why we'll throw Don's summary that he gave us as he kicked off our series. He says this, Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of God restoring his people to the temple and the word in the land to show their lasting need for the promised Messiah's full rescue, that there is this fuller and better rescue and city to come. And we're not reading Nehemiah for leadership lessons on city planning or church planning, but realizing that unless we get our souls back, all the best religious structures and sermons and systems will be of no help. Ezra and Nehemiah have a game. And it's meant to be filled by you, the Christian reader, with the better Ezra and Nehemiah. But let's not be too hard on our boy, Nehemiah. Not too hard on the man, Ezra or Z-Man. They never thought that they would be the Messiah. They never thought that they could bring about the things that the Messiah would finally do. They knew that they were forerunners or precursors to this messianic age in Israel, and they were playing their role. They were providing a physical place, a physical place to worship, a physical place to live. They could have never foreseen that God would use them to bring about not a physical people, but a spiritual people from all the peoples of the earth, destined to live in not a physical temporal city, but an eternal city in the heavens and be giving a living temple that would reside in their hearts that would enable them to worship anywhere on the earth. That was paradigm breaking. What God would ultimately do, that Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel were a means for. And so Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, they were only operating off of part of the story. They only knew part of it. They knew that there was this promise 
that God would bring his people back, back to their purity, back in his presence through a person, but they had no clue that that person would be the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. They had no idea that would be the case. They didn't know much else. But you know who does? You do. I do. They had partial revelation. We have full. We knew before them. We knew of them. We know since then. You know how it's going to end. And yet, our, we as a church know so much more than Nehemiah knew, but yet we do so much less. If you know as much as Nehemiah, if you know more than Nehemiah knew, let us live as Nehemiah did. And in fact, Jesus says that we can expect more. John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. That's the key. Greater than Nehemiah. That's the potential within your heart and within your life. And yet we clench it. And that's what God wants. That's the life that you can live, that God has for us. We know more than Nehemiah. We have more than Nehemiah. We ought to live more like Nehemiah. You know more? You have more. Let's live more like him, which is ultimately a call to the Jesus-like life. So where have we been? We explained verses 30 and 31. I gave you a long recap. And now I'm going to exhort you to a Nehemiah-like life. Just two. Two ways. I'm going to explain two ways. Things that we learned from Nehemiah that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Of ways that I think we can live. That we ought to live. Knowing what we know. Having what we have. Living like Nehemiah. Which is ultimately the Jesus life. Live the Jesus life. Number one. Nehemiah was bothered. He's a bothered dude, a bothered man. He was disturbed. Here it is, chapter 2. Put up there for verses 1 through 5. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? You got a dropped countenance, Nehemiah. What's wrong? You're not sick. Something's bothering you. Something's disturbing you. Then I was very, very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. There's a moment of respect. And then he has the gall to say this. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Heaven forbid that to happen to the holy city where my God has promised to reconstitute a nation and deliver a Messiah for the world. He was disturbed. Now, the interesting thing about how Nehemiah knows this is that God didn't give him a supernatural vision. He didn't send him an angel God just gave him some 
news through a friend. He heard something from a messenger, like you and I might hear some news, and it bothered him. It disturbed him. It, it broke his heart, and it wasn't a political bothering. I can't believe so-and-so got elected. It wasn't a cultural bothering. I can't believe the world's just going to whatever. It wasn't this, the world is bad and mean and scary and toxic, and I'm going to catch a sin virus from it. It's none of that. He was bothered by the very thing that bothers God. Nehemiah saw a world that was out of step and misaligned with God's mission to fulfill his covenant promise of bringing his people back to their purity in his presence through the person of his son. And it's what bothered Nehemiah. He was bothered with what bothers God. And so what did he do? He decided to do something. He acted. He didn't wait for someone else. He didn't ask the elders of his church. He just prayed and planned and pursued what bothered him. So I guess in a sense this morning, I'm asking for you to go get bothered by something. Go get a broke heart. Something would affect you. And I don't know that it's necessarily politics or platforms or political parties. I'm just not that worried about it. I don't think God is because when God thinks that stuff's getting out of a hand, he just issues an edict for an unbelieving president. So what's the litmus test for being bothered by what God is bothered by? Get focused on God's mission. Evangelize the lost, disciple the saved, get laser locked on that and see what issues begin to bother your heart. Don't be bothered standing at a distance from God, what God's covenant fulfillment of his promises. You're going to get bothered. It's probably going to take you getting close and getting your hands messy in what he's doing. I love the fact that Jesus was bothered. He was a bothered man. He was bothered by the brokenness in our world. He had compassion and he cared and he saw the situation for what it was and he leapt into action. That's what Jesus did. And I'm going to take some liberty here with a parable of the Good Samaritan, assuming some of us know that. And we have a Jewish man who was left for dead and the Levite passes him by. The priest passes him by and said, well, that sucks or that sucks for you. And then the Samaritan walks up and he jumps into action. He jumps into the ditch with the man that was hurt. He puts his wounds in the sores and in the wounds of his life. And he resuscitates him back to life. And he spends his time and his hard-earned money to revive him back to life. And he gives the man his life back. And that's what Jesus got bothered in. That's what bothered him. He was bothered by what was bothering other people, what was sucking life from them. And so we want to get bothered over a world that is out of step with God's mission to reclaim it. That's what we want our bothering to be about. And why are we not so bothered? I think there's a lot of reasons. You got to be asking yourself. Why are you not more bothered by the relationships in your family or with your children or with your siblings or with your neighbors or coworkers? 
why are you just okay and you throw your hands up and that's just the way it is? I think one reason for you and for me is we don't know our Bibles. You don't know your Bible. We don't remember your Bible or you don't live like you know it. And we might know some, the, some, some tree, this tree or that tree in the Bible or that character or that story, but we miss the forest for the trees. The forest is God's covenant. I'm going to reclaim my people back to their purity, back in my presence, to the person of my son. And that gets missed. We miss the forest. And so when you look at the world, because you're not aware of the story and you're not aware of how things are supposed to be, you settle into the status quo and you just think, well, that's okay. It's not okay. It's not. It's misaligned. It's dislocated. It's out of sync with what the master in the universe is doing. And he wants you to jump in. Because Jesus jumped in to get you. Jump in like Nehemiah. And when you become entranced with God's story and what he's doing, when the story doesn't map on with this world, it sticks out like a sore thumb. That's at least one reason. For Nehemiah, covenant was king, and Jesus is the key to that. Jump into action. As a dad, as a mom, as a spouse, as a friend, as a coworker, as a neighbor. Jump in. Finally, number two, second exhortation will be done. Done with this life. Nehemiah number two took earthly risk. Nehemiah was a bothered man, but he also was a risk-taking man. Think of what Nehemiah did. How much easier would it have been for him to taste wine all day out of a golden chalice. That would have been a nice existence. Would have been an enjoyable life. That's not what he did. He left the king's court. He risked his reputation. He risked promotions. He risked money. His family and friendships. And he's going to go make a request of a king who had already said no to the building project. Artaxerxes has already stopped the building project once, and now he's going to go ask this guy for more. you got to be kidding me. When was the last time, gosh, that I did something for Jesus in front of another that really caused me fear? Why is it so rare? He's a cupbearer, he's a servant. Who is he to make such a request? And yeah, Maya then makes over a thousand mile journey from somewhere in Iran all the way back to Jerusalem. He's under constant pressure, enemies, opposition, conspiracies, threats. He has to, with his team of comrades, they hold a trowel in one hand to lay bricks and they hold a spear or a sword in the other because they're so scared they're going to get leapt on and killed 
He's a cupbearer. He's got soft and untanned hands. He's not a bricklayer. And he's not a calloused man. What, 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 is, what Nehemiah is doing is so irrational. It's illogical. It sounds absurd. He knows nothing about laying walls. But you know what? You know what it says in Nehemiah 2.12? It said that God had laid something on his heart. He had laid something on his heart that really bothered God and now what bothers Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, will you be bothered with me? Let's build a wall. That's what he does. Now, what did Jesus do? Jesus was not only a man who was bothered, but he was a man too that took the God-man who took earthly risk. He too left his kingly, heavenly father's side in the heavenly courts and he left his position and his prestige and the place on the throne and he traveled thousands of miles to earth born of a servant to get his hands dirty and he took upon him an apron and he wrapped it around himself and he came to a city that did not have broken walls but broken and rubble-filled hearts and he too endured unimaginable persecution and plottings and targets and death threats and he told his disciples not to take up their swords in the garden of Gethsemane but to surrender him that he might give his life and lay it as the foundation of all foundations and become the chief cornerstone of your and my salvation as Jesus it kind of ought to make your hair burn Sure, Nehemiah made sacrifices, but Jesus was the sacrifice. And are there any sacrifices that are too great to make for him? Is there? Is there one that you or I could make that we would calculate that's too great of sacrifice for Jesus Christ? That word shouldn't even be in a Christian's vocabulary. The sacrifice, that's fine. I don't know if sacrifice should actually be there. I don't know that that really should exist for you or for me. So just as we said, why are we not more bothered? Why do we not take more risk? And I think in the grand scheme of it, my God and your God is just pretty tiny. Like he's little. Like he's puny. He's about this big. And our world and our situations and our lives are really, really big, but God is really, really small, very, very small. But he wasn't small for Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a huge vision of God. When rousing his comrades to the wall-building task, Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 4.14, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember him. Don't look at the wall. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your enemies. Look at him. He's great and he's awesome. Let's build. That's what freed them up to make sacrifices, risking their own life. Nehemiah was basically like, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so many of us have our little microscopes out going, wait, wait. There's God. He's a little smidge right there. 
and others of you take out your telescope. You fix your eyes on God and he's looming and he's large and he's Lord over all, over everything in your life. And he's great and he's awesome. And the reason you have fixed your risk problem is because you fix your perspective problem. When your perspective gets changed, then you become a risk taker. So trade your earthly risks for heavenly reward. I want to put a quote up here from Dr. David Livingston. He was a missionary, a British missionary to the continent of Africa. He explored Africa and opened it up for the gospel. And he was giving a lecture to some students in Cambridge. And this is what he said toward the end of his lecture. For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such a great office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my time in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, the peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it's a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Another missionary said, when God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. I love that. I love that way of life. That's our way of life. It was our Savior's way of life. And your Savior and mine now lives inside of you. For those that can say that phrase on earth, you will have taken some risk. But for those who can't, no need to fear. You will see it. You will say it one day in heaven, only wishing you would take him more. So this is how we'll end. Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a divinely bothered man and a risk-taking man, but this morning we don't need a model. We need a Savior. Nehemiah, he shows us some sinlessness. He does, but he can't make us sinless. He can set up some structures and systems to keep you from sin, but he can't contain our sinful souls. Nehemiah can even tell us not to sin, but he can't change a sinner. Worship and service can come up as we enter into communion. And so this morning we remember, remember how we started. Remember me, O God, for my good. When we take communion, it's a remembrance. It's a practice of remembrance. And if you are remembering that Jesus took your sinfulness to the cross and gave you his sinlessness as a credit to your account, I would invite you to partake as the elements are passed around, as the bread and the cup are passed. 
But if you're kind of unsure or you're questioning whether or not you're trusting Jesus to take your sinfulness and you're trusting for him to give you his sinlessness, then let it pass by. Your job is, is to watch and to observe. But maybe you would pray for the first time, God, don't remember me. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. So worship's going to play. The servers are going to walk down. They're going to serve communion. And then I will come back up and lead us together corporately to partake. Mm -hmm.